object to this kind of semantic claim. Well, we're in a transition. And the probability of a recession within the next year is not particularly elevated. No, no one is predicting a recession now. These are not the marks of an economy in recession. If you're explaining how recession calls are made, you're losing. Do you see that, Jared? No, I don't think so. You I just described a 33% decline in GDP. That is the definition of a recession, my friend. That doesn't sound like a recession to me. Well, there are uh, all of the recession deniers uh, this week on uh, <laughs> trying to figure out uh, what in the world's going on here. Well, to try to help us make sense of this Alice in Wonderland world that is the Biden administration's economic policy is our good friend Michael Bussler, professor of finance and uh, public policy analyst at uh, Stockton University. How you doing, Michael? Thank you for joining me. This is really a... Uh, this is an Alice in Wonderland time in terms of uh, this this economic uh, maelstrom that we're in, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is, Randy, and thanks for having me. As you know, it's always my pleasure to be here. So uh, let's start with some of the facts that we have. Um, the first quarter GDP was negative. It's declining, negative 1.6%. We just learned the second quarter uh, GDP number in terms of growth was also negative. And under every definition, two successive quarters of negative growth in GDP is a recession. <clears throat> now, the Biden administration says recessions are officially declared uh, by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Um, and it takes them some time before they declare. Now, what they say is um, if you're in a recession, unemployment's going to go up. And since unemployment is at a full employment level, we're not in, in a recession. They'll they'll argue. Uh, now, of course, the answer back to that is we have a severe labor shortage. Um, even today, there's uh, a little over 11 million job openings and only about 6 million unemployed people. So what we're going to see during this recession, um, somewhat um, unlike other recessions, is you're not going to see a big increase in the unemployment rate. What you're going to see is all of those or, or many of those open jobs uh, will end up going going away and in other words someone says look i need uh, 10 people to operate my business i can only get nine so i've been operating with nine for the last year um now that business has slowed down instead of seeking that 10th person i just won't seek that 10th person the nine will be uh, okay so the okay so let me so michael let, let me interrupt you there so what i think i hear you saying is that the demand for labor is going to go down, and that is tantamount to layoffs, right? They're basically laying off the unfilled slots because the demand right. that uh, was there and those nine people doing the job of 10 are now nine people doing the job of nine, and soon exactly. it'll be nine people doing the job of eight, and then the real layoffs will start. Is that what you think could happen? That's exactly right. Now, the question is, how severe will the recession be and will that business uh, lay one person off? Will his business uh, fall off enough that instead of having even a nine, they'll cut back to eight? Uh, I think you'll see some of that. Uh, so you'll see the unemployment rate go up, but nothing like we've seen in prior recessions. You know, 1981, the unemployment rate hit 10%. And so, and during other recessions, it's usually in the seven, 8% range. So I don't think we're gonna get anywhere near that, uh, but we still are in a recession. Recession means the economy is receding, and receding means it's going backwards. And for the last six months, it's definitely going backwards. Let me just add one more thing, Randy. Um, 
even if you say we're not in a recession, and we are, but even if you say we aren't, you'll have to agree the economy is stagnant. It certainly hasn't grown in the last uh, six months, so it's stagnant. And we have a very high inflation problem. Well, when you have a stagnant economy with inflation, we call that stagflation. We haven't seen this since the end of the Carter administration. We're talking with Michael Bussler, Professor Bussler, who writes frequently on Town Hall. And I was looking, Michael, at your recent post here, and it was uh, sort of prescient. You wrote a post, uh, an opinion piece called Summers is Wrong, Raising Taxes on the Wealthy Will Make Inflation Worse. And by golly, just a couple days later, the, the get it, the Inflation Reduction Act, Joe Manchin caves... Oh, and gosh. and and they're somehow they're going to solve inflation by spending three quarters. Well, they're going to tax three hundred and some odd billion dollars of the rich. Exactly what uh, Summers wanted them to do. And they're going to spend four hundred and some odd billion dollars for their green donors. Right. For the green en- energy, a boondoggle for them, uh, a windfall for them. Uh, you boy, you were right on top of that. Uh, how? Why is it that raising taxes on the wealthy actual that'll bring it that'll bring money into the government? It'll reduce the deficit and inflation will go down, right? <laughs> um, not not exactly. Uh, so um, what, what they're saying is this won't have any impact on inflation because if the government spends an extra hundred dollars and you tax $100, it shouldn't have any impact on demand uh, or inflation is what their argument is. The argument makes a little bit of sense if you only tax lower income people, and why is that? So uh, there are three things you do with your, your income. The first thing you do is pay taxes. Whatever left over, you're free to dispose of any way you want, and you either spend it or save it. Now, low low income people, um, pay their taxes, whatever left over, since they're low income, they have to spend just about all of it. So they don't save any of it. So if you raise their taxes, consumption will go down. And uh, if consumption goes down, uh, then demand will go down. The problem is, uh, if, you, if, you, if you tax the wealthy, um, it's different. So why is that? Somebody makes a million dollars a year, let's say, uh, pays 300,000 in taxes left over with 700. Let's say they spend 400 to support a nice lifestyle. The other 300 becomes their savings, uh, which they invest to build their, their wealth and also to create capital for the economy. So if you raise taxes on the wealthy and he's saying, we're not going to raise taxes on anybody making less than 400,000. So if you raise taxes on the wealthy, their taxes go up. So their disposable income goes down. They they still will spend uh, to maintain their lifestyle, but it will reduce the amount they have to save and invest. That means there's less capital going into the economy, less capital formation, and we have a capital-intensive economy. And if business can't get capital to expand, uh, when demand increases as you know time goes on. If they can't raise capital to expand and meet the higher demand, the only thing left for them to do is to raise their prices. So taxing the wealthy destroys capital formation, or at least reduces capital formation. That will tend to slow economic growth, which will tend to add to inflation. They have it exactly backwards. 
Yeah. And so and along with that, I guess we could say that if that if that extra income after now they've been taxed more than they are, which reduces that investment income, which yeah. then means someone's got to pay for that additional, uh, you know, for that additional lug. So they pass it on to the consumer. That's the inflation exactly. piece. But with that, uh, without that uh, continuing infusion of new capital into business and expansion won't that also affect the job market too as we were just talking absolutely um Mm. if business is not expanding now fortunately there are plenty of jobs around today but as the recession goes on we just talked about the demand for labor uh, is is going to go down eventually we'll come out of the recession and as we do demand will start to pick up and you hope business expands and and then hires more people and we really get out of this. But if business tries to expand and they don't have capital for uh, to do that, then they can't expand. And if you can't expand, you can't create new jobs. You end up with inflation and unemployment going up. Look, we, we did the opposite of this and you see what what happened in the late 1990s? I was not a big fan of uh, President Bill Clinton, but look what he did. He lowered the capital gain, lowered the capital gains tax rate in 1996 from 28 to 20 percent. That created a huge amount of new capital for expansion. He also said, and I quote, the era of big government is over. So he started to scale down the uh, government and government spending work with Newt Gingrich at the time. They actually balanced the budget. We have a a surplus in the budget in in those years. So the point is, if you reduce taxes on capital creation, the economy expands. From 96 to 2001, the economy expanded an average rate of 4.5% per year, the best growth spurt we've had uh, since after World War So if they just look at what their own uh, president of their own party did, they should follow that instead of trying to do what they're doing today. We're talking with Michael Bussler, professor of finance at Stockton University and a and a, just a fabulous public policy analyst who can package it in ways that we non-economic and finance people can understand. So I guess when you teach your economics and your finance 101 class, you probably teach them that the government never creates wealth. It only sucks it like a giant economic vacuum Dyson cleaner, right? And uh, I, I, the Democrats and the left have it exactly the other way around. They think that for every dollar the government spends, they generate what Nancy Pelosi has said it, two and a half dollars of uh, of growth, and it just is not true. It's just patently false, isn't it, Michael? They generate $2.5 in extra demand. Now, whether business can meet that demand by expanding output, or do they have to in, uh, respond to that demand by raising prices? And when the government uh, deficit spends, and remember, the last two fiscal years, the federal government has deficit spent nearly $6 trillion dollars. And on a $22, $23 trillion annual economy, that will lead to pure uh, inflation. So it generates, if if they spend, it generates dollars, but you don't know if that will mean higher uh, prices or if it will mean expansion in the economy. Without capital, it's going to lead to higher prices rather than expansion. If they're not expanding, they're not creating any new jobs. And if they're not creating any new jobs, we end up with a severe uh, unemployment problem. 
And if I'm a businessman, and even if I can get capital, in fact, I know a businessman that closed a smaller bistro in Des Moines. He's one of our favorite chefs. And he... West Clive, a, a nice suburb of Des Moines. Uh, we love to go up there and eat. He's a friend of ours. Um, and he was going to open a bigger place. And then the inflation started last year. And we just checked in with him. He's had to put things on hold because the cost of money to build that place has skyrocketed. And he's having finance problems. So that's a perfect example, a microcosm of exactly what you've been talking about. When the access to capital is not there, either because the capital's not there or the cost of it, of borrowing it is there, that business doesn't expand. And he, his staff is clinging on to him at a smaller little cocktail lounge that he's opened. But um, he can't do the big operation and expand for more jobs uh, just as we're talking about. Uh, I have to ask you, I'm hearing reports, and I don't know if there are objective metrics from the Bureau of something <laughs> that you can look at, but I'm hearing that the money that, the $6 million that was spent in, you know, CARES 1, CARES 2, the ARP, all of that money that people were saving and then spending, that that's drying up. Will that put people back into the labor participation force? Is it true that it's drying up? How will that money drying up when it does, how will that affect our economy, inflation, jobs, the recession, the whole deal? Okay. So uh, what, what we're saying here is um, because the government gave out so much stimulus money um, and because they increased some of the social spending on food stamps and welfare, uh, et cetera, and because um, people didn't have to pay their rent for the last couple of years because you couldn't get it uh, evicted. College students didn't have to pay their student loans. In fact, they still don't have to pay their, their student loans. I talked to some people that in the uh, early 20s. I said, listen, uh, how come you're not going back to work? And they said, well, you know, we have a pretty good thing here. I got uh, $6,000 in stimulus money from the government. I got laid off. They extended the unemployment benefits, uh, started out at 26 weeks, ended up going uh, well over a year. And then the federal government added money on top of what the state was was paying me. Um, they said, look, I, I, I ended up, as you said, saving a lot of that money. And they said, they said, look, I like this lifestyle. I don't have to work. The government gives gives me money and uh, I'm living OK. So now, when that uh, their savings and things start to to dry up, as you mentioned, they're going to have to go back to uh, to work. Now, how business has responded, saying, "Look, the only way to get these people back to work is to start offering very high wages," and you say, "Well, that's good for the worker," and it, and it is, but the problem is it drives up the labor costs for the business, and they have to have to pass that along. So the hope is that some of these people that have dropped out of the labor force will start to come back into the labor force once all the savings has dried up. You asked me for some numbers. Um, during the pandemic, when the government was handing out money, uh, the personal savings rate got up to about 10%. Now, historically, it's in the 3 to 5% range. But wow. the most recent figures indicate that the savings rate has dropped down now. And in fact, there's some negative savings uh, occurring because people are, are spending some of that. So you're right. At some point, hopefully soon, they're going to have to go back into the labor market. Yeah. But, you know, it was reported in this GDP report that uh, wage growth was, what, three, two and a half, three percent, something like that. I mean, it's still growing. But when you factor in inflation at nine percent year over year, six percent, whatever, I mean, you're still losing. You're still climbing uh, down. You're oh, I think we lost him. 
No, I'm, I'm here. No, I mean, oh, Randy. Yeah. Oh. I've got good news to show Welcome back to the program, gang. And uh, thank you for staying with us. Had a little technical problem there at the end of the last segment. We're uh, with Dr. Michael Bussler, professor of finance at Stockton University, and uh, the gentleman who can help us always unpack very complex economic um, issues and and uh, the things about the economy that sometimes in the reporting get lost because we don't get honest reporting anymore from the legacy media. And Michael helps us unpack that. On Twitter, you can stay in touch with him at mbustler and on townhall.com and other outlets you can read him. Uh, before we uh, before we cut out there, Michael, we were talking about how real wage growth, when you factor inflation, is just not keeping up. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so in the last 12 months, um, as you pointed out, the uh, prices have gone up over 9%, 9.1%. Wages have gone up uh, by a little less than 5%. So normally 5% wage growth is good, you know, especially if inflation is running at 2%, you know, then, then you're coming out uh, ahead. But if prices go up 9% and your wages only go up 5% in real terms, um, you're, you have negative wage growth because you can't afford the things that, that you've been buying. And that's what we're seeing happening uh, now. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't see it ending uh, anytime uh, in the near future. All right. So that's that's the issue there. I get it. What about this tax in the, in the new mansion deal, mansion Schumer deal, which is basically build back better bungalow uh, Biden's disaster plan? Um they're 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 claiming to raise rates only on rich people and especially corporate. There's going to be a 15 percent minimum corporate tax. Now, that from a populist standpoint, a lot of people say, hey, that sounds like a good thing. Let's let's fleece the man so that we can pay for all of this good green energy deal stuff. What's wrong with 15 uh, percent tax on corporations like Amazon and and uh, all the other big companies they like to cite, because after all, they're not paying their fair share with all the tax credits and all the loopholes they have. Well, put a few holes in that argument for me. Yeah. So President Biden says 55 of the top 500 uh, corporations paid zero income tax uh, in one year. Uh, and that's true. Of course, the other uh, 450 corporations paid hundreds of billions in taxes. And why is it that um, a corporation doesn't have any tax liability? Well, it's usually because they had losses from the prior year and the losses simply carry forward and will offset some of the income. So for one year, they may not pay taxes um, because they had losses. But you take a look at what they've done since they've um, been started, and they're paying hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. The other thing is um, the corporations, uh, when you say we're going to tax corporations, if corporations are going to produce a product, it has to be profitable. And if it's not profitable, they're not going to produce it. They're going to do something else. So if you raise taxes, uh, on corporations, they're going to say, look, we're going to have to raise prices to cover that in order to maintain our profit margins. Uh, so by uh, raising taxes on corporations, aside from uh, reducing their retained earnings and 
reducing their capital, uh, they're going to have to pass that along to consumers. Now, a lot of economists say corporations don't really pay taxes. They collect taxes. Uh, so if you tax them, they end up passing it uh, along, and it's just going to turn in uh, either in higher prices or if consumers are resistant to the higher prices and they can't pass it along, then it's not profitable, and they're simply not going to make the uh, product any um anymore so they the corporations do pay plenty in taxes uh, look, look they're they're picking on the oil companies now they're saying look at the huge profits that you know one oil company made 20 billion dollars uh last year well the year before they lost 22 billion dollars when the economy <laughs> shut down and nobody was buying oil so if you look at it over time corporations in my view pay their uh, fair share and overtaxing corporations or high income earners, uh, as we mentioned, ends up reducing capital formation. And we have a, a capital intensive economy. That means corporations mm-hmm. need capital to expand. And if you reduce capital formation, you reduce expansion. And that leads either to more unemployment or high, and or higher prices. Last question for you, Michael. Um we saw a 0.75% uh, you know, Fed's fund rate increase by the Fed this week. They are trying yeah. to thread the needle. They're trying to bring this economy, this inflation, to a soft landing without a recession. Many have said that it just can't be done. You cannot avoid a significant recession. If you were Jerome Powell, what would you be doing? What can be done to try to avoid a, a, a head-on crash here? Yeah, so the first thing I would do if I was Jerome Powell is resign. <laughs> because he, he certainly <laughs> fouled all this up. Now, why do I uh, say that? So the best measure of uh, inflation at the consumer level is the consumer price index. Prior to the uh, pandemic, the consumer price index goes up maybe one-tenth or two-tenths of a percent a month. But does after all 12 months, you're looking at about a 2% inflation rate. And that's about where we've been prior to the uh, prior to the pandemic. So one tenth or two tenths of a percent a month. In January of 2021, the CPI went up three tenths of a percent. In February of 2021, it went up four tenths of a percent. In March, it went up six tenths of a percent. In April, it went up eight tenths of a percent. Clearly, we had an an inflation problem back then. Uh, The Federal Reserve said, don't worry about it. This is just temporary. Um, was a word they use, transitory. This is just transitory. It'll go away. We don't have to do anything. So they continued to keep interest rates near zero, and they continued their bond-buying program, which vastly expanded the money supply. Finally, at the end of last year, they started to cut back on the bond-buying, but they waited until March to start to raise interest rates. So had they started last year, um, they would have been able to raise interest rates gradually, just like they did in 2016. The end of 2016, we had a hint of inflation. Over the next two years, they raised the interest rates a quarter of a point, um, every, uh, eight times over the next two years, gradually brought up interest rates. It got rid of any inflation issue, and the economy was still able to grow. This time, he's now more than a year late with raising interest rates and waiting that long shot the inflation rate up to 9%. So now what he has to do, and it will be painful, and I said back a year ago, 
that this was going to lead to stagflation and to get rid of stagflation. It's very painful. Those of us who are old enough to remember 1981 will remember high inflation and rocket high um, interest rates. So the question was, what would I do now if I was Jerome Powell, assuming he's not going to take my advice and resign? So what you would do then, uh, <laughs> he's going to have to get even more aggressive with interest rates. Um, so he's raised them. Three quarters of a point last month, three quarters of a point last week, a little bit smaller in March and April. He's going to have to get more aggressive and interest rates are going to have to go up at least probably two or three or four times more before the end of the year to try to ring this inflation out. Now, the problem with that is you want to take demand out of the economy to reduce inflation. But since we're really in a recession, if you take demand out, it's likely to cause the recession to get worse, which is exactly what happened in uh, 1981. They got the inflation out, but it ended up bringing on a very severe recession. So what I would do now, if I was him, I would continue raising interest rates until that inflation rate goes down. And it's going to take at least till the end of the year for that to to happen. Uh, And his chance of coming in with a soft landing is uh, virtually zero. Uh, we're already in a recession, and uh, what he's going to do is going to make it worse. Could there be could there be a silver lining for people who do have some savings that they haven't had to spend? Maybe you know, I, I think, like you said, those who are in the you know in the lower um, economic strata are spending every bit they have to put food on the table and pay utilities and and so forth. But could it could we see a decline in prices? This spiraling price up upswing in prices we've had over the last year or so could we see because of a of lack of demand uh as people begin to yeah. lose their jobs because the housing market goes away and new home building and you know all that could could we see a decline in prices could that be a silver lining that's exactly what he uh jerome powell hopes happens he raises uh interest rates enough to take enough demand out of the economy to put downward pressure on prices and to start to see some of that inflation subside. That's exactly what Jerome Powell hopes happens. He says he can do it without making the recession worse. Uh, I don't see that happening. Uh, So the recession will get worse. But on the plus side, um, the inflation will will come down. There's actually a couple other good things that happen during recessions. Um, The bad thing, of course, is unemployment uh, goes up, and obviously that's not good. But uh, business gets a little hungrier and businesses, uh, it's hard for them to get. So they start doing a little more innovation saying, look, I got to bring people back into the, I have to bring people back into the market. So I'll come out with some new products. I'll give people, people better value. Uh, and that should bring them back in. So you see a lot of innovation occurring during recessionary, uh, uh, periods, uh, and inflation will tend to go uh, tend to go down, and um, you know that's really what they're what they're trying to do. Okay, great. Hey, well, really, thank you very, very much for uh, for everything and uh, really unpacking this for us. I sure hope that um, officials from the GOP listen to uh, and read you and listen to the various interviews you do, because in fact, we ought to, Leah, we ought to send them the file of this because uh, they need to get you involved in the next administration, Michael. You uh, you really nailed it. You predicted it. And uh, those predictions have come true, and your analyses are always spot on. I'm really appreciative of you joining me for a couple of segments this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you, Randy, and thanks for the kind words, and it's always my pleasure. Look forward to doing it again. 
Great. We'll do that. Michael Bussler on Twitter at mbussler and on townhall.com and other outlets. You can read him always full of great information. We're going to step aside now and then when we come back right around the corner. Virginia Cruda joins us to talk about Matt Gates and pediatricians influencing three-year-olds and other fun cultural stuff right around the corner here on News Talk STL 1019-941. Be right back. Talk STL 1019-941, as it is the pre-primary edition of the Tobler Show. Don't forget to tune in starting at 7 p.m. Tuesday night. Tony Colombo and Vic Purcelli anchor that program, and uh, I'll be checking in. I know Mike and uh, Katie and, boy, the whole gang, uh, Chris and Gabe, and everyone's going to be checking in, I know, that evening to give you full, robust coverage. And it doesn't get better than this live and local uh, election night coverage, uh, every election night that the team brings you. So I'll be looking forward to listening myself. Hope you'll tune in all evening, starting at 7 Tuesday evening. Virginia Cruda joins us now. And uh, Virginia, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Hey, so, uh, we, yeah, we just got off uh, the, the, the line with uh, Michael Bussler. Have you found yourself scratching your head, maybe shaking it like you're just waking up from a bad dream with all of the rhetoric concerning this is not a recession, this is not a recession, and on top of Mayorkas, this is, uh, the border is secure, all of the blatant lies and deceit coming from this administration. Do you ever recall seeing anything like this during any administration you can recall? No, you know, I, I know that they all spin everything but I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again. Um, if it weren't for the gas lights, I don't think there'd be any lights on at this White House. There's no, They're telling you the entire message from this administration appears to be you're not seeing what you see. You're not hearing what you hear. It's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. And that's, that's it. That's and their strategy just- to tell you it isn't what it is. Um. And, and even if it is, we're fine. It sort of reminds me of scenes from the Titanic movies. You know, when initially the response <laughs> after the boat right. hits, you know, uh, the, the, the crew and the ca- hey, don't worry, we're all good. You know, as the as the, as the, the ship is tilting and listing and all of the lower uh, floors are filling up with water. And I think the American people, I, I, I like you said, we're, we're used to some spin. Even those who may not be that engaged in the whole, you know, in the whole right. political uh, movement. But boy, at some point, people, they, they've got a pretty good BS meter. And I think, well, yeah, I, I just think yeah, that's, it's, it's, that's worse than like the reality the is Knight. when they try to cover it up. Yeah. It's like the Black Knight in uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail. You know, he's got <laughs> no legs and only one arm left. And he's like, it's a flesh wound. I'm good. <laughs> like, guys, no, <laughs> that's not what's going on here. I think my favorite this week, my favorite example of that this week was that um, after Joe Biden's COVID diagnosis and you had um, video of him on a phone call with no mask on and people are like, well, wait a minute, who was running the camera? Like, 
He's supposed to, if he's <laughs> yeah. following CDC guidelines, then if anybody else is in the room, including somebody behind the camera, you know, he should have a mask on and he should be doing what, all the things that they, so they asked uh, Karine Jean-Pierre and Dr. Ja about this during a briefing. And they said, you know, why wasn't he obeying the CDC guidelines? Because we assume somebody was manning the camera. And Dr. Ja looked right at him and said, well, I think that you'll find that Joe Biden is uh, abiding by the CDC guidelines. And the reporter's like, but he isn't. Like, we can see this. We <laughs> see the man behind the curtain, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was pr- it was pretty amazing that the hypocrisy and the double standard. But speaking of double standards, uh, Merrick Garland mm-hmm. interviewed by Lester Holt earlier in the week, or was it last weekend, saying, uh, well, we're going to be looking very I mean, basically between... Um, you know, Liz Cheney uh, hinting that the January 6th committee is going to refer Donald Trump for prosecution. Then Merrick Garland, very seriously minded and demeanor wise, saying we're going to prosecute anyone who had anything to do with that. Uh, you know, this this double standard where Joe Biden doesn't have to wear a mask when he's infected, but everyone else does. Um, right. Someone someone attacks uh, gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin. And gets out without bail, uh, initially anyway. Uh, they they might and more likely will go after Donald Trump criminally, but not Hunter Biden. Um, right. You reported, in fact, on the Lee Zeldin thing. I didn't realize right. that the New York Times had some different opinion on that. I wasn't aware of that. Oh, yeah, no, no. They, they decided, they, they put it out that it was, it was all a conspiracy because Lee Zeldin is running a tough-on-crime campaign because New York's bail laws are a joke and felons can, you can be charged with a felony and released like this guy was. And so what happened was he was attacked at the campaign event and he was able, now Lee Zeldin's an army veteran. I, I don't know if you knew this and you could, you can, you can see the training in action. If you watch this video, he had the guy's hand before it ever got close to him. He had him by the wrist. As soon as he saw that coming for him, he grabbed it. And uh, so he held the guy off and then a couple other people jumped in and helped him and they were able to subdue him without anybody being injured, which is great. I mean, obviously, that's the way you want it to go down if something like that is to happen. Right. But Mm -hmm. so they take him down and they get him. He gets arrested because law enforcement shows up right away. Lee Zeldin then gets up and finishes his speech and then. he tweets afterward, they're going to release this guy because New York's bail laws are awful, essentially. That's not word for word what he tweeted. But, right. and of course, that's what happened. So then the New York Times decides, well, probably Lee Zeldin just um, arranged for this to happen because it, it makes his uh, campaign, it, it bolsters his campaign. Now, granted, he's using it. He's capitalizing on it. He's saying, see, this is a perfect example of how bad New York's bail laws are. And he's not wrong. But they're suggesting that he set it up and that the uh, the, the uh, sheriff who charged the guy intentionally gave him a charge that didn't qualify for bail so that they could use this as an example to bolster Zeldin's campaign. And oh, okay. I thought I thought that this was that they were alleging this was a false flag deal. That this was a no, no, he no, set no. It they, up. they think oh, the okay. attack. Ha- they think the attack actually happened. 
but they think it was a setup. Like it was I intentional see. to like either either they knew it was going to happen and then set the right. wheels in motion or it happened and they said, oh, well, I we see. can charge him with a lesser offense so he'll get out without bail and then we can use this to um, yeah. to, to push our message. And you talking know, that, with Virginia was, Cruda. Yeah, it, it, it was no, uh, it was interesting. So you talk about. I mean, folding yourself into a pretzel to try to attack, uh, you know, your opponent. The New York Times, they now have no, they, they just will stop at nothing to try to, um, discredit any, anything that may be negative towards the left and the progressive cause. I'm, we're at that point now, aren't we? Yeah. Well, and they did admit that they didn't have any evidence to support this theory, but they admitted <laughs> it eight paragraphs into the article. Virginia, let me play some sound for you that was quite controversial. Matt Gates, um, when asked about his comment about pro-abortion protesters and their physical appearance, here's what he said last week. Is it safe to say that based off of your comments, you're suggesting that these women at these abortion rallies are ugly and overweight? Yes. What do you say to people who think that those comments are offensive? Be offended. Now, I think we'll all agree that to make personal ad hominem attacks on your uh, your opponent or sympathizers right. with your opponents is not appropriate. Um, what What's your response to Matt Gates and the whole episode? Well, I kind of I kind of laughed at the whole thing because one, I mean, Matt Gates is the one who wore a gas mask on the on the House floor as soon as COVID became a thing. Um, so, like, like. He, he's going to do what he... He's a firebrand. That's what he does. He's going to say the thing that's going to get the attention. And it worked. It, you know, it, whether or not you like it, it worked. And I, I will say the thing... Um, Ricky Gervais made a point in his recent Netflix special. Um, he said, you know, people tell me all the time that my jokes aren't funny. And I say, no, that's not true. You don't find them funny. So she says, what do, mm. what do you say to these people who think that that this is offensive and he says be offended in a lot of ways the people who are offended by Matt Gates are probably looking for a reason to be offended by Matt Gates um, and that's that's kind of the state of our political discourse right now is people looking yeah. for a reason to be offended whether it's the right or the left you know on the right they're waiting for you to say something about gun control so that you can be offended and 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 go off and on the left, they're waiting for you to tell them that they can't kill their babies anymore, and then they can be offended. Um, and but but here's here's what I would say: I, I am personally pro-life. Um, I was raised in the church. I believe that all life is precious because God made everyone individually. And so, to me, somebody who is standing on the street and demanding the right to kill their own children—that's a kind of ugliness that really doesn't. It, it's not physical. That, that's, yeah. that's a different kind of ugly. Now, Matt Gates yeah. is making a different point, obviously, but I think that if you're willing to stand on the street and scream about how desperate you are to kill your own children, I think that there yeah. is definitely an ugly tone to that, but it's not it's not physical appearance. And so yeah, I wouldn't right. necessarily and, and I, say that, but I, I get what he's saying, too. 
And I would agree that they're, I mean, their behavior when they're yelling at reporters yes. or they're yelling at pro-life, it's just the, 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 the demeanor and just the crude, coarse uh, epithets that they throw at the at the pro-lifers, you know. But I would say this, too. If, if I know that I was going to be on CNN, I'm at a protest in the nation's capital or some other, even at a local, you know, uh, uh, something that's going to be covered by the news, I will say... And I told uh, I told a Springfield uh, station this the other day uh, on Tim's program in Springfield. You know, yeah, they they don't appear to be well groomed. That's all I'm going to say. They just I I just the grooming and uh, I don't know. I I won't say it any further. They just don't appear to have a a personal pride in their general appearance. I'm not going to talk about their body morphology or, you know, anything like that. Hey, uh, let me let me play a real quick clip. And we don't have a lot of time, but I want to play. Do we have time here to do this? Uh, We don't. We don't. I was going to ask you about Chip Roy and 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 Mayor Bowser of D.C. Do you have about 30 seconds that you can do on Miriam Bowser and uh, the uh, the sanctuary city mayor calling in the National Guard? I I do think it's interesting that when 4000 refugees um, or migrants from uh, wherever end up in Washington, D.C., it's a crisis. But when millions cross the border into Texas and uh, small towns in Texas and Arizona, um, that's not a crisis. You know, (laughs) they should be able to handle it, you know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's different. It's always different when the problem is at your door. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Well said, Virginia. And I hope folks will stay in touch with you uh, either at the Daily Wire or on uh, the Twitter. You're very active on the Twitter feed at VA Cruda. I always uh, am uh, staying abreast of whatever's going on by, uh, I guess I should say now, abreast is not a good word. We now have to say we're staying a chest. Uh, of what's going on. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we thank you for joining us. Thanks, Virginia. Take care. Absolutely. Have a good one. All right, you too. There she is, Virginia Grudish. Boy, she's able to really uh, really put the knife in those Democrats when they're being deceitful and or hypocritical. I'm Randy Tobler, along with Leah. We're the Tobler Show on 1019-941 News Talk STL. Lots more coming up. Stay tuned. So-